Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. And I invite you this morning to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue a very brief three-week series on money and giving. As you're turning there, let me just offer a brief reminder of my goal for this series. My hope is that this series is an opportunity for each one of us here in our congregation to hold up our hearts against God's Word so that we might be a congregation that's characterized by joyful and generous giving for the Lord and for His people in all areas of life. But of course, particularly in light of our capital campaign that's begun, we we know that talk of money in buildings is going to take a a greater role in our congregation in the coming months. And so my hope is these weeks are a chance for us to fix our eyes on the Lord and to guard against idols or temptations or wrong motivations of all sorts so that we might approach this process in a way that's thoroughly biblical and God-honoring and gospel-driven in the coming months. Last week we began by looking at Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6, where he reminded us that we all face a choice over whether we will serve our money or serve God, whether we will use our money for treasures here on earth or for treasures in heaven. And we heard the, the central point that Jesus has come to set us free. He's come to set us free from chasing the pleasures of security that money claims to offer in this life. And to find our joy and our security in him. And as we find our joy and security in Christ and not in this world, we are free to give generously for the glory of his name. But this morning we want to turn and let God's word shape our motivations for giving. Because my guess is that if we were to have a quick brainstorming session as a congregation, we could come up with a pretty good list of wrong reasons that we give. Sometimes we give because we just feel guilty not giving. Maybe that's the way we feel sometimes when the Girl Scouts knock on our door to sell us cookies. Or maybe we we feel that we want to please the person who's asked us. Or maybe we feel pressured and, and that we can't say no. Or maybe we want to have some leverage with God and say, well, I'm giving this. I hope this works well. Or maybe we just feel good about ourselves when we give. And the list could go on and on. And so we need to hear from God's word. And so I want to ask you to read 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 15 with me so that we can let God's word shape why and how we give. Hear God's word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, We urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, 
in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack." God, this is your word, and we thank you for giving it to us. And we ask that as your spirit has inspired these words, so you may apply it this morning to our hearts, that we might honor you and glorify you with all that we have. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading a quote this morning. I quote, It's important to recognize that many of us have adopted a consumerist mentality that pushes us to always want more. We will rarely ever feel like we have enough money. If you keep putting off giving until tomorrow, you might wake up in 10 years and realize you're still waiting. This is a great quote. It identifies our temptation to materialism and discontentment. And it warns that it's all too easy to think, I'll give later and put it off for another day. But I wonder if I were to offer you three guesses as to the source of this quote how many of you would get it right? Because this quote is not by a pastor. It's not by a commentator. It's not even by a Christian author at all. This quote comes from a 2018 article by Camilo Maldonado. He's a senior writer for Forbes magazine. According to Maldonado's biography, he writes in order to help people make more money and live a happier life. But as Maldonado says, most people don't realize that by giving even small amounts, you will feel wealthier, healthier, and happier. He cites two PhDs in their book, Happy Money, noting that the very act of giving makes people feel richer since giving to charity is what rich people do. And that giving actually activates reward centers in our brains so that giving will lead us to greater emotional health and happiness. Now, do you realize what just happened there? Giving to others became a way to help myself. And this is a great reminder that God is not concerned so much about what we give, but also why we give. It's why scripture says over and over, God does not want sacrifices, offerings, and generous gifts themselves. He wants our hearts. And it is only when our hearts are in the right place that our giving honors him. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul, as he talks to the Corinthians about giving here, focuses on why and how we ought to give. Let's begin by noting why we should give. I think Paul gives four motivations that should shape our heart of giving as God's people. We begin in verse 1, where Paul says he wants the Corinthians to know about the grace of God given among the churches of Macedonia. 
Now, Macedonia, just a reminder, is the province to the north and the east of Corinth. It was a province that would have included cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And Paul says that something is happening in these churches that he describes as the grace of God. But as we read on in verse 2, we find that this grace of God has come through the generous giving of the Macedonian churches. It's interesting, if you look down in verse 6, Paul again talks about giving as an act of grace. And in verse 7, he urges the Corinthians to excel in the grace of giving, just as they excel in faith, speech, knowledge, and love. In other words, according to Paul, giving becomes a way in which we are instruments of God's grace in one another's lives. And I think, first, Paul's language makes it clear that God himself is the source of the money that the Macedonians have to give. Just as God is the source of the faith in our hearts, and God is the source of the knowledge of God through his spirit, and God is the source of love that is the fruit of his spirit at work in us, all of which Paul mentions here, so God is the source of their money that enables them to be a blessing to the churches. But even more importantly, perhaps, by calling giving a grace of God, Paul is making it clear that the Macedonian giving is simply the means by which God himself is showing his gracious kindness and provision to the believers. In fact, as Paul will say in the next chapter, this ministry of giving is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God because their giving is the way God has provided for their fellow saints. In other words, giving is a little bit like a parent who invites your young child to help them make the cookies. A parent gives a young child the honor and dignity of pouring the ingredients into the mixer so that the child can say, I helped make these cookies. Even though every parent knows they were fully capable of making the cookies and it would have been far easier for them to make the cookies on their own without the child's help. But they have the privilege of being part of the means of making the cookies. In the same way, God has given money to his people, but now he has offered us the privilege, the invitation to give in order that we might share in his work and provision, that we might be a means of his grace so that we could say, we helped distribute the grace of God. What a privilege. You know, back in the Old Testament, David actually says something very similar. If you would Take your Bibles and actually encourage you to turn back to 1 Chronicles 29. Because we're reading in 2 Corinthians about giving that is done to help saints in need. But back in 1 Chronicles 29, David was taking up offerings for the building of the temple. And what we're going to see is that each of the motivations Paul mentions are actually also mentioned by David when he talks about giving for the temple. Back here in 1 Chronicles 29, David has taken up this offering for the temple and after giving abundantly David prays to God prayer begins in verse 10 he blesses God I'll pick up reading in verse 11 of first chronicles 29 where David says yours O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. Skipping down to verse 14, David then prays, But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? 
For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we were strangers before you, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there's no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. You see what David's saying? God, all these things are yours. You are the owner of all things. You've given all things. How is it that we as your people should have the privilege of giving your own things to build you a house for the glory of your name? It's the same motivation as we find in 2 Corinthians. This privilege that all that we have belongs to God and came from God. And what a motivation, what a privilege, what a blessing that we would have the opportunity to give what is God's as a means and instrument of his grace for the glory of his name and the provision of his people. That's an incredible motivation to give. Well, Paul then adds a second motivation in verse 5. Not only do we give because it's a privilege to be a means and an instrument of God's work, but in verse 5, Paul says the reason for the Macedonians' generosity was not their approach to money, but their attitude towards God. You see there in verse 5, he says, the Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul's talking here not so much about a sequence of events in time, not first they became Christians, then they gave. He's talking about priorities. He's saying first, above all, the Macedonians submitted themselves to the Lord so that they then gave generously to Paul's ministry and the needs of the saints. It was because they submitted themselves completely to the Lordship of Christ and gave their whole hearts to the Lord that they then overflowed in generous giving. And I think we know what this looks like, right? I'm sure many of you have known maybe a, a young man who is particularly frugal. He doesn't spend money on anything. And all at once you start hearing that he's, he's out spending money for, for nice dinners and, and expensive gifts. And you think, what happened? Did he change the way he thinks about money? And the answer is, of course not. He fell in love. And now the guy who wouldn't spend any money is spending money for things he never would have spent money for because his heart has a new first love. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here as well. He's saying the Macedonians didn't have a new view of money. They had a new love, their Lord Jesus Christ. And it's when we give ourselves fully to the Lord as our first love submitted to his lordship that we eagerly overflow in generous giving. If you still have your fingers back in 1 Chronicles 29, David says the same thing to Israel. Back in 1 Chronicles 29, when David first invites Israel to give, it's 1 Chronicles 29 verse 5. He talks about giving things of gold and silver. And then he asks this question. He says, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Do you hear what he says? Not who's going to give money here. Who's going to consecrate himself to the Lord? And when we give our whole self and our whole hearts, submitting all that we are to God, then giving is but a natural overflow. And that is this motivation again. Genuine, generous giving is a consequence of consecrating ourselves to the Lord. You know, one commentator on this passage notes that American churches have historic amounts of wealth from a strict numbers perspective. 
But he notes that giving in American churches is actually incredibly low compared to what American churches would have to use for God's kingdom if every believer tithed regularly as God calls us to do and then gave as the Lord called in extra ways for those who are in need. But this passage reminds us that the issue isn't with our wallets, it's always with our hearts. As the commentator puts it, commitment to the lordship of Christ stands as the preeminent foundation for joy-infused, sacrificial giving. Do we want to grow in giving? Then we must have a large view of Christ's lordship. And so the second motivation Paul holds before us for giving is are our hearts given completely to the Lord? If we have submitted ourselves and our whole hearts to the Lord, we will be rightly motivated to give by a love for him and out of our joyful service to him. Paul lists a third motivation in 2 Corinthians. And by the way, keep your finger in 1 Chronicles if you're there. We're going to see that same motivation again in just a second. But if you're back in 2 Corinthians 8, in verse 8, Paul says he is not commanding the Corinthians to give. Rather, his desire is that the Corinthians would prove their genuine love by their giving. Now, the word Paul uses here is a word to test something. It's to, it's to demonstrate its true nature or reveal its true nature. Paul's already talked extensively about the Macedonian church and their generous giving, which demonstrated their love for God and for his people. And now he's calling the Corinthians to do the same. As perhaps of interest that historically we know that Corinth was a far wealthier city than Philippi or Berea or Thessalonica. And you can hear, I think, Paul saying, look what the Macedonians have done, overflowing even in their poverty. Now, Corinthians, I desire to prove that your love also is genuine by your giving. I think Paul's point is really the same point that John makes in 1 John three seventeen, when he says that giving to our brother in need is a key indication of whether God's love is in our hearts or not. So our giving reveals our hearts and it reveals whether God's love is in us. If you flip back to 1 Chronicles 29, David also reflects that giving is a test of our hearts. David is reflecting on the contributions given for the temple. I've already read how he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. He's already said that we were strangers and sojourners in the land and reflected on God's salvation. He's going to comment later in the passage about God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in verse 17, notice what David says in verse 17 of 1 Chronicles 29. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. See what David's saying? Yours is the power and greatness, God. You're the one that saved us. You're the one who fulfilled all your promises, but I know you test the heart, and my giving is going to demonstrate whether or not I have a true joy and gratitude for all that you are and all that you've done. And so once again, in Old Testament and New Giving that is free and generous as a response to God's greatness and glory is giving that passes the test, that reveals a genuine love for God and for his people in our hearts. 
And so it's that desire that is the third motivation to give, that our hearts might demonstrate a genuine love for God and joy in his salvation. But back in 2 Corinthians 8, we find the fourth and climactic motivation for giving. And it comes in verse 9, where Paul brings the Corinthians back once again to the heart of the gospel. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And just think about the riches of Jesus. To talk about riches in terms of money would be utterly inadequate to talk about the riches of Jesus. The riches of Jesus have to do with the very glory of God. He's the one who dwells in unapproachable light with all the glory of the Godhead. And yet Jesus willingly set aside this glory and became poor, taking on a human body, being born in a manger, being despised and rejected by men, going even to the point of the cross, giving more of himself than we could ever give. And why? With what result? That we might become rich. That we might then be invited to share in the very glory of Jesus himself. For to those who receive Christ's death in our place and submit to him in repentance and faith, Jesus says, the glory which you gave to me, Father, I now give to my people. The old Princeton theologian Charles Hodge wrote about this verse. He said, No man can enter into the meaning of 2 Corinthians 8-9 or feel its power without being made willing to sacrifice himself for others. Of course, on the flip side, I think we must also say that our giving will always be misplaced and mismotivated unless it is a natural desire springing up because we realize the unfathomable sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Randy Alcorn in his little book, The Treasure Principle, says, our giving does not come out of altruism or philanthropy. It doesn't come because we want to feel wealthier, healthier, and happier. Our giving comes only out of the transforming work of Christ in us. Gaze on Christ long enough and you will become more of a giver. Like thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. This is the heart of the matter, isn't it? The true heart of giving rests on knowing Jesus Christ. And that is the most important and fundamental motivation we have. So Paul gives us four reasons to give. We give because of the privilege of being instruments of God's grace. We give because we've first given ourselves to the Lord and then to one another and all that we have. We give to God's people and God's kingdom to demonstrate the fruits of a heart that loves our Savior. And we give to God and his people because of all that Christ has given to us. That's our motivation for giving. But let me... Briefly then, note that Paul also tells us how we should give. He gives us three things that should characterize a Christian's giving. Let's look at them very briefly before we end. First, the Corinthians are to give generously. Notice how he holds up the Macedonians as an example. He says in verses 2 and 3 that their joy, even in extreme poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity such that they gave even beyond their means. Now, Paul offers an important clarification there. We might ask, well, what does it mean to give beyond our means? Does that mean we're supposed to give things we don't have? 
And of course, in verses 13 and 14, Paul clarifies, we are not to give to such an extent now that now we are a burden to others because we don't have the very necessities that we need that God has provided for us. Rather, we are to give out of our abundance to those who are in need. But if you balance verses 2 and 3, giving beyond our means, with verses 13 and 14, I think Paul's point is clear. Our giving, although it should not go beyond our means, in one sense, should not be restricted to a comfortable portion of our extras. Rather, our giving should be an open-handed willingness to give of ourselves for the kingdom and the people of God. I think we can easily see this in in a child. Maybe an issue comes up. Maybe there's an opportunity to give something that you have as a, a present, perhaps, to children who will not receive Christmas presents. I remember an opportunity like this when I was a child. And I said, absolutely, I would love to give something to them. In fact, I have that old teddy bear in the bottom of the bin in the back of my closet upstairs. I'd be glad to give that to someone who's in need and isn't going to receive a present. And of course, we all see the problem, right? If we're just willing to give something we don't need anymore, don't like anymore, and won't have any need of in the future, that's not a generous giving. But I think if I'm honest... I still see the same response in my heart today. And it doesn't have to do with ratty teddy bears. It has to do with my money. When I have some extra and don't need it, or it won't impact my budget too much, I'm willing to give it. But isn't that the same restricted attitude of the child willing to give the old teddy bear, but not anything that would really be a generous and sacrificial contribution? Rather, what we're called is this open-hearted generosity, knowing all that Christ has done for me and pouring out for God's kingdom and God's people. So we're called to give generously. Secondly, the Corinthians are called to give eagerly. We see that in verse 4. Paul says, the Macedonians begged him earnestly to be able to take part in the relief of the saints. Paul didn't come to the Macedonians and say, I really need you to give now. And they sort of begrudgingly wrote a check out or dropped coins in in his hand. No, it was the Macedonians who said, Paul, may we please have opportunity to give to the needs of God's saints. And Paul says it's that eagerness, that desire that should characterize the heart of God's people. We're to give generously. We're to give eagerly. Finally, we're supposed to give freely. We see this in the Macedonians' example, who gave not as Paul expected, but beyond their means of their own accord. As Paul clarifies in verse 8, he is not commanding the Corinthians to give. They must give as they decide in their own hearts. Now, it's interesting as I read this, because Paul is certainly challenging the Corinthians to give, and yet he's also telling them to give freely as they decide in their hearts. I was reminded of the words of Uh, Fred Smith, Christian businessman, who said that there is a very fine line between encouraging and manipulating. And every Christian leader must know that line and not step over that line. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. You know, it's interesting. You see Paul applying some pressure. He starts by saying, I want you to know the grace of God here in Macedonia where they've given generously beyond their means And then in verse 6 he says, and I'm sending Titus to you to complete this grace among you too. That's a little, that's a strong encouragement, isn't it? 
He says later, he challenges the Corinthians to give in a way that proves their love genuine. In chapter 9, which we didn't read, he even goes a step further and says, I've been boasting to the Macedonians about your generosity, so I'm going to send some brothers ahead to get the gift so that my boasting isn't in vain and you aren't humiliated by falling short of my words. That's not some strong encouragement. There's a little bit of, 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 of pressure to those words, but Paul always does not cross that line because he then says, your gift must be a willing gift, not an exact exaction. You must give joyfully as you decide in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. This is between you and the Lord because of what is Christ has done for you. And so our giving is to be generous, eager, and free. So here we come to the end of this passage this morning. You know, each one of us may need to reflect on this and apply it to our hearts in different ways. But as we reflect on 2 Corinthians and on 1 Chronicles, consider the weight of what Paul said. This passage would have been a shock to anyone who was not a Christian in the first century A.D., Because in the Greco-Roman world, giving was the prerogative and privilege of the wealthy. No one who didn't have family inheritance would have ever been expected to give. And yet here are the Macedonian believers acting contrary to any expectation. In their poverty, their overabounding joy that the Son of God would set aside his riches for their sake leads them to overflow with generosity for others. And my prayer above all for Westminster, is not about what kind of building we can build, although I think the Lord may be leading us to do something for the sake of his kingdom. That's not my prayer. My prayer is that we would realize our neediness before a great and a holy God, that we would repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And that having seen what the Son of God has done for us, that we too would act contrary to any natural expectation. That we would regularly, eagerly, and freely give with an overflowing generosity because of the overabounding joy that we have in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's that kind of giving that demonstrates the genuine love of one who has given himself first to the Lord that becomes a means and an instrument of his grace at work among us for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we hold our hearts before you and we know that we are tempted in so many ways, even in our giving, to give for reasons that may not be honoring to you. And yet we look to Jesus Christ and we see him pour out himself for our sake, that by his poverty we might know the very riches of the glory of God. And when we see what Christ has done for us, how can our hearts but be changed? How can we not long to give freely, eagerly, and generously as instruments of your grace out of our love for you for the sake of your kingdom? And I pray that we would do that and be that as a congregation for the glory of your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you.
And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.